I enjoy art. National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. is my favorite Smithsonian. And it has one of my favorite paintings, which is Monet's Parliament at Sunset. I worked in D.C. for a time, and it was uh, wonderful to me that I could go there whenever I wanted and see my favorite painting free of charge. I love to look at beautiful paintings, but I know virtually nothing about art. I haven't studied art history. I don't know the proper techniques of painting. I couldn't tell you what makes good art good and bad art bad. I just know what I like. Some of you may have studied art history. Some of you may know how to paint. And if we were to visit the National Gallery together, you would help me enjoy it even more. You could tell me the particular history of a painting, perhaps, what was going on politically and culturally at the time the work was created and how the work of art was expressing that and interacting with that. You might be able to tell me the personal story of the artist and help me understand how his or her biography came out and came through the painting. You could help me notice details in the actual work itself that I would have missed otherwise. You, you see, there's a difference between a casual observer of art like me and a knowledgeable enthusiast. Usually someone who is passionate about art knows something about it. I enjoy art, but I can't claim to be passionate about it. People who are passionate about something have studied it. They understand what's going on, not only on the canvas, but behind the canvas. Well, this morning, I want to talk not about works of visual art, but about the works that our lives produce, what the Bible calls good works. But I think it's easy to approach good works the way I approach art, to be casual about it. We know what we like, but we couldn't tell you much about what's going on below the surface. Some of us might even have a negative connotation with good works. Perhaps they speak to us about legalism or moralism. In certain parts of the church, there has been a major emphasis and concern to fight the false teaching that good works can earn you salvation. Well, that's a good thing to fight that because that is a false teaching, and yet poor old good works kind of get a bad rap in the process. We come away thinking they're a bad thing. Let's stay away from those. Well, the New Testament is neither casual nor confused nor shy about good works. The call of a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a knowledgeable enthusiast and a passionate participant in good works. But in order to be that, we need to study it. We need to understand it. We need to, as it were, get behind the canvas and understand how good works work and what's going on there. So this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. If you'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles there. It is early in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's just finished his Beatitudes, and now he's going to use two illustrations to teach his disciples what it means to follow him and what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. The two illustrations are, of course, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. He unpacks these illustrations a little bit. And then he concludes his teaching in verse 16 by saying this, 
so that, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus isn't blushing when he talks about good works. They are very important to him. Right at the outset of his major sermon, he he tells us he wants our lives to be defined by good works. But I think in these four verses, he takes us into the heart of them. He helps us see behind the canvas. He moves us from casual observer to passionate participant. And so I want to look at this passage in three ways. First, our identity as disciples of Jesus Christ. Second, our purpose. And third, the good works themselves that our lives produce. So first, our identity. Notice what Jesus says. This is really important. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Friends, these are not commands. They are statements of identity. But too often we hear them as only moral instruction. Go be salt. Go and shine light. Now there is a moral imperative that flows out from this, and he's going to take us there in a moment, but you can't start there. You must start with identity. Jesus' words about salt and light don't come out of thin air. They have a context, you guessed it, from the Old Testament. They speak about our covenant relationship with Him. If you look back in the Old Testament, there was a time where God wanted to communicate His everlasting relationship to us, and so He called it a covenant of salt. Why? Well, I think because salt preserves something over a long period of time. Through his covenant, God wants to say to us, I will preserve you. I will redeem you. You are mine. Covenant of salt. Light has a similar covenant context. Isaiah 42, God says to his people, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So when we hear Jesus say, you are salt, you are light, we need to remember who we are before we focus on what we should do. We are people whom God has called. We are people God has redeemed. People to whom God has committed himself in covenant forever. You are salt. You are light. It's a profound word of grace when you understand it for what it is. He's not telling us to go make ourselves salty, to go find light somewhere and fill ourselves up. He's saying you are these things because you're in relationship with me. Our identity is not based on what we have done. It's not based on our good works. It's grounded in what Jesus has done for us and in us and who he has made us to be. This is so important because we cannot create our identity by our good works. But that's exactly what we try to do, is it not? We may feel unworthy, unclean. We don't feel like a good person. We're comparing ourselves to somebody else. And so we go out and we do some sort of good works to make ourselves feel better, to grab hold of an identity where I'm the person that does this. Well, it won't work. It won't make you feel clean. It won't make you feel superior. Only Jesus 
can make you good. Only He can ground your identity in the right place. Only He can forgive you and cleanse you and make you a new creation. Our good works flow out of our identity, not the other way around. We actually see this pattern in His life. A few weeks back, we considered His baptism. What happened there? Goes down in the water, he's baptized by John the Baptist. But notice that before he started his public ministry, where he did amazing good works, all these good works that sort of defined his life, but what happened before that is he's baptized and a voice, the Father, speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then he goes out into the desert and he fights off temptation. And then he goes and he heals and he redeems and he saves. The good works flowed out of his identity. His identity came first. We see a similar thing happen at the end of his life. It's in John's record of the Last Supper, John 13. Jesus wants to wash his disciples' feet to show them how much he loves for them, he loves them, to foreshadow the greater washing that was going to happen on the cross and to set this pattern for them of how they are to love one another. But it was a humiliating act. Only the lowliest servant would perform such a menial task. And Jesus does it. But what are we told right before he does it? John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus knew his identity. He knew he came from God. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. He knew he was going back to God. He knew who he was. And so he was able to lay down his life in this powerful act of service. You are salt. You are light. That is who you are, friends. That is your identity if you're a follower of Jesus. But second, we have a purpose, and our purpose actually flows out of our identity, and really they're inseparable. I'm going to show you that. Separated them so we can understand them. But the purpose and the identity go together. Well, what is the purpose of salt? It is to flavor, right? And it is to preserve. Brings out the flavor of something when you put it on it, when it penetrates a meat or a vegetable. And it also preserves something. It keeps it from rotting. Well, our purpose as disciples is to bring the flavor of the kingdom of God into the world. What does that mean? Well, it means that we go out and we live as if God is king. Because he is king. Even though he's not accepted as king in every place we go out as people who know he is king. He's king over our lives. He's king over our church. We know he is king over the world. And so we go out and we live that. We go into neighborhoods, workplaces, relationships, schools, and we say, friends, this is what it looks like when God is king. This is how we act. This is the things that are. These are the things that are not when God is king. And as we do that, we flavor the world. And as we do that, we also preserve it from rotting and from spoiling. You see, a world that rejects God as king is bland and tasteless and it's rotting. 
So our purpose is pretty important. One scholar said that Christians are the most significant people on the planet. The world cannot live without us. It will go bland. It will rot. Well, after calling his disciples the salt of the earth, Jesus gives them a warning. Verse 13, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? But I think Jesus is actually just pointing out the obvious. True salt cannot actually lose its taste. Its chemical composition cannot change. Jesus is pointing out an impossibility. Saltless salt is like a square circle. It's a contradiction. A disciple who isn't flavoring and preserving the world with the kingdom of God doesn't even make sense because to be a disciple is to bear witness to the kingdom. It is our purpose that flows naturally out of our identity. If salt isn't salty, is it really salt? That's the question we have to ask. If a disciple isn't flavoring, if she isn't preserving, is he or she really a disciple? Jesus makes a similar point with light. It is the nature of light to shine. Light does what light is. The purpose of light flows out of its identity. And Jesus tells us the purpose of a light is to shine. And so if it's a city on a hill, it is to be seen by all of those around. If it's a lamp in a house, it is to light up the house. And then in his illustration with light, he points out this other contradiction, another ridiculous idea like saltless salt. It's hidden light. Why would anyone want to hide light? The purpose of light is to shine. It would be rather silly to try to hide it. No one puts it under a basket. On the contrary, if you have light, if you have a lamp, you put it on a lampstand. You you lift it up so that it can fulfill its purpose and, and maximize its effect in the home. You see, when people do not accept God as king, the world is a very dark place. Need I illustrate? When a person does not accept God and his sovereign reign over their life, they walk in darkness. Our purpose as disciples is to shine the light of God's kingdom into every place. Whatever lampstand God's given us, we we lift that up in our relationships and the places he's called us to be so that people can see what it looks like to have God as king. Our individual lives should show that. Our corporate life as a church should put that on display. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we don't still have dark corners, things that need to be forgiven. But then again, that's the point, isn't it? That part of having God as king means we have a benevolent, loving, forgiving king who in Jesus forgives our darkness and then begins to push it away. And so we are a people who go out, our purpose, to shine light as we demonstrate God's kingship over our life. So we have our identity and we have our purpose. Can't really separate them. We flavor because we are salt. We shine because we are light. Our purpose comes out of identity. It's who God has made us to be. To not flavor or to not shine is a contradiction. It doesn't even make sense. So with that foundation 
in place, we now can look at the third point, which is the good works themselves. If we reversed it, it wouldn't have worked. If we'd tried to perform our way into our identity, we would have come up with this notion that we could earn God's love somehow by what we do, and we cannot. We have to begin with this idea that Christ has already loved us while we were yet sinners. He's already given us his love and blessing. And now the natural thing to do, having been made these new creations, is to go out and to express in response to his love these good works. So in verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want to ask two basic questions about good works. First, what is a good work? And second, what is the intended result of a good work? First, what is it? Well, biblically speaking, a work is not good in and of itself. It is good as it flows out of relationship with God. Think about that for a minute. A work is not good in and of itself. A work is good as it flows out of a relationship with God. Some of you might disagree with that. Let's look at it a little further. There are some Anglican theologians 500 years ago or so who wrote down some important statements in our tradition called the 39 Articles. Now, instead of a relationship, they use this word faith, but they express the same idea. Listen to how they put it in Article 12. Good works are the fruits of faith. They spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith. So good works come out of faith in and a relationship with God. They are not intrinsically good. It's kind of a big theological idea. We could wrestle with that for a little while, but let me put some flesh on it. Let's tell a story. Matthew 26. We meet a woman whose heart has been captured by Jesus. Some way she had faith in him. Don't know a lot about her. It may have been Mary, the sister of Lazarus, because she shows up there and does a similar thing. But whoever this woman was, she loved Jesus and she had tasted Jesus' love. And in response, she did this beautiful act. She took an alabaster flask, very expensive ointment, perfume, and and she poured it over Jesus' head. The disciples were indignant. They they were shocked, maybe, because this woman shouldn't have been doing that. That was improper. But they were really focused on the economics of it. In their minds, the perfume was way too costly for such a wasteful thing to do. Why why would you waste it like that? The intrinsically good thing to do would have been to sell it and to give the money to the poor, right? That's that's what we think. That's the, the practical application. They didn't understand yet that good works come out of relationship. Listen to how Jesus responds Matthew 26, verse 10. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Literally, she has done a good work. Same words we read in 5.16. What is a good work? It's a beautiful work. Something done arising out of our love, our faith, relationship with Jesus. But surely caring for the poor, for example, is a good work in and of itself. No strings attached. Seems so, doesn't it? 
But consider what the Apostle Paul said. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Or Jesus' word from John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, Jesus did teach about the importance of doing things like caring for the poor and the stranger. But do you remember how he framed it? Matthew 25. It's a bit surprising. He said, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And then the righteous, they're confused. They don't understand what he's saying. They say, but when do we do these things for you? We were just doing it for the poor people that we met. And Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Even when we don't realize it, there's relationship involved. It's personal to Jesus. We were serving him all along. So what is a good work? It's a beautiful work, arising out of a relationship with Christ. And the beauty and the goodness of the work, it's not determined by the impact, by the effectiveness, or by the glamour in the world's eyes. It's determined by Jesus. And that's actually quite a freeing thing. Because I think we can sometimes feel inadequate, not just in the world, but even in the church, that that our good works, they're not very flashy. I'm not in Rwanda setting up a microfinance program right now. I do drink some of the Rwandan coffee, which just helps. I'm not in India fighting sex trafficking. I think for a lot of us, our, our good works just look pretty ordinary. Might I encourage you in that? Might I say that's where God has us? is to just go care for the people right in front of us. And if we're doing it out of our love and faith in Jesus, it is a good and a beautiful work. Now, sometimes our faith takes us to the far corners of the planet. Praise God when that happens. Praise God for the people who are in Rwanda and India. We want to be salt and light everywhere we go, but for most of us, our good works are local and ordinary and everyday. Paul writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, he's giving these qualifications of widows and and which widows do you set up that the church will support. But he says this, and I think it's really helpful for us. He, He says to Timothy, they need to have a reputation for good works, and then he lists these specifics. If she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints, and cared for the afflicted. Hardly glamorous works. Can there be anything less glamorous than raising children? Those of you who are parents or caregivers or aunties or uncles or grandmothers or grandfathers, you deal with poop, with pee, with vomit, with temper tantrums, with hormones, with attitudes, and with more dishes and laundry than you ever could have imagined. But you dig deep. You learn to lean into the Lord. You keep laying down your life for the child that you might provide for them, that you might raise them in the fear and discipline of the Lord. This is not glamorous work, friends, but it is good and it is beautiful work in the eyes of the Lord as it comes out of your relationship with Him. Those of you who are parents or who want to be parents or caregivers in some way and you don't know Jesus, don't try to do that. Don't try to care for a child without Jesus. It's hard enough. You need the resources that Christ can provide. You need the the grounding for your identity or you will lose it as you try to raise a child. 
And then what about these other works that Paul mentions? Showing hospitality, washing feet, caring for those who are afflicted in some way. It struck me that these are the kind of works that Jesus himself did. And he tells us in John, he did it out of relationship with his father. He said he only does what he sees the father doing. And I think that's exactly the same for us. We do what we see him doing. And we see him showing hospitality. We see him stooping down and washing feet. We see him caring for the broken and we join him there in relationship with him serving together. Second question about good works. We'll wrap up with this. What is their intended purpose? Well, this is really what distinguishes biblical good works from other good works. You see, a secular way of looking at good works is that it makes the world a better place and it makes us better people. But Jesus tells us God's intention for good works is that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Now, do our good works make the world a better place? You bet they do. They salt, they flavor, they preserve, they shine light. So they do have that purpose, but that's not their primary purpose. The primary purpose is that people can see God and that they give glory to, and this is interesting, he doesn't say God. First time in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, they give glory to who? Your Father. It's relationship language. It's intimacy language. He's beginning to share his own relationship with the disciples. It's your father. It's all about relationship. The intended result of a good work, it's not to bring glory to us. It's not to bring glory to our cause or to our church or to our organization. The purpose is that it would bring glory to God and that in that people would begin to see how good and beautiful he is and might fall in love with him. God wants others to see how good it is when he is king. And so he sends us out as his ambassadors to say, look at the glorious, wonderful kingship of this king. Do you know him? Do you love him? Because let us show you what he's like through our good works. That presents a challenge for us in doing good works is that we have to do them in a way that people don't notice us that he gets all the glory and we don't get any glory, that he becomes famous and we don't. And that can sometimes be a hard thing to do. So friends, our Lord, he wants us to be passionate participants in good works, not casual onlookers. In order to awaken our passion, he shows us the true nature of good works. You are salt, you are light. That's your identity because of me. And that's your purpose to flavor, to shine. Therefore, produce beautiful, beautiful works in the world, even if they're local, even if they're ordinary. Because remember, the measure of the goodness of the work is not its effectiveness, it's not the glamour in the world's eyes, is does it come out of relationship with Jesus and faith? And in the end, as we go out and we do these good works, people will see how good the King is and give glory to Him. Praise God. Let's pray.